Well, if you would, open up to the book of Galatians. We're going to be in Galatians chapter 1, as we saw this morning. We're going to be continuing our series through Paul's letter to the Galatians. We'll be going from verses 11 to 24 in chapter 1. So, while you're getting settled in there, I'll go ahead and pray for us this morning, and then we will dive, dive in. Father, we, we come to you this morning, and we recognize our dependence on you. We recognize that we desperately need your grace, that apart from your grace, we're helpless. Lord, we also recognize that us gathering together and having the privilege to hear your word taught to us and to receive it and to try and live by it, we recognize that is an amazing gift that you have given us. And so, Lord, as we're here this morning, as we hear your word, as we listen to it, and as we try to apply it, Lord, we just ask that you would help prepare our hearts for this, that you would humble us, allow us to have hearts that are willing to hear correction, and then strengthen us by your spirit to go out from this place and apply the truths that we hear from you this morning. So, Father, teach us what you want to teach us this morning. Grow us, sanctify us, help us to love you more, and glorify yourself this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name. Well, we are often captivated as humans by the concept of transformation. Whether it's water to ice, caterpillars to butterflies, my personal favorite, cows to cheeseburgers, uh, Peter Parker to Spider-Man. Transformation is captivating to us as humans. We often look at transformation stories in movies and in books, and we're awed. Well, this morning, we get to see a rather famous transformation. We get to see the transformation from Saul, persecutor of Christians, to Paul, a fervent follower and proclaimer of Christ. And if you're with us this morning for the first time in the last few weeks, we've been going through the book of Galatians. Uh, the book of Galatians, it's a letter written by Paul to a group of recovering Pharisees. These Galatians had begun to distort the gospel, and Paul is writing to them to help correct some of these mistakes and remind them of the one true gospel. This series has kind of highlighted the overarching theme of Galatians in teaching us how to understand, receive, and live out the gospel of grace. Our first week, we kind of walked through the idea of grace and peace. We learned that Paul is uniquely qualified to be writing this letter to the recovering Pharisees as one himself. We learned that we as humans have the propensity to either add to or remove from the gospel of grace. And Grant gave the analogy of coffee. At some point, if you add too much water or too much creamer, it stops being coffee. We learn that the grace of God is not only our source of salvation, but that is, it is also our source of strength in our life for Christ. And then lastly, that first week, we learned that we are to be a people living in grace and peace. Our lives should be marked by ones who live in grace and peace. And then last week we continued, we picked up in verse 6, went through verse 10, and we learned that there is no other gospel on this earth 
that compares to the one true gospel of grace. We pose the question, is your life mainly defined by living for your acceptance, or is it defined by, or is it from the acceptance you already have in Christ? We learn that sometimes it's easier and more comfortable for us to be led astray by those who change the gospel than it is to allow the gospel to change us. We breezed through some of the counterfeit gospels that exist in our day and age, the gospel of self, the gospel of prosperity, the gospel of morality. We learned that they're all false. And we were relieved from the pressure that some of us have been living by, this this pressure of living every single day as if our life was a tryout. Our motivation is not one of a tryout for a team, but rather a celebration of our adoption as sons and daughters. And that takes us to where we're at this morning. Galatians chapter 1, we'll pick up in verse 11. This morning we're going to see Paul kind of close his argument against people claiming that he was a people pleaser. We'll see him kind of address two attacks. We'll see the attack on his credibility and then the attack on his message, the gospel. And in response to these two attacks, Paul is going to share both the source and the power of the gospel through his personal testimony. This section of Paul's letter to the Galatians is twofold. It's going to show us how both the truth of the gospel and the transformation that it brings can impact the world and advance God's kingdom all for his glory. And this morning we're going to kind of outline this section similar to what we see in Ephesians chapter 2. If you were with us a year or so ago, we went through Ephesians chapter 2. The outline for Ephesians chapter 2 is simple. I was, but God, now I am. That's going to be the outline we follow this morning as we go through Galatians 1, 11 through 14. I was, but God, I am. In response to the attacks on Paul's credibility and his gospel message, he very effectively responds by saying, you're wrong, and you know how I know you're wrong? Because this message didn't just come from man, and I didn't just make it up. No, Jesus himself revealed it to me when I least expected it, and my life is living proof that this message has the power to truly transform. So let's look at Galatians chapter 1. We'll start in verse 11. We'll read the first four verses and consider Paul's former life, I was. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age, and among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. So this is Paul's before Christ life. This is before he was transformed. This is the I was. Verses 11 and 12 will kind of act as a transition piece for Paul, kind of picking up where we left off last week, where he was addressing the attack that some were saying that he was living for the approval of man. Some were saying that he was a people pleaser. And these two verses basically put an end to that argument. 
Look at verse 10. He says, For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I now trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So he essentially continues his counter to the claims that he was seeking the approval of man. And he does so by saying, I didn't make this up. No man made this up. No man even taught this to me. And we'll touch on that encounter when we get to the next section, talking about but God. But it's important to note that the way that Paul received the gospel is inherently unique from how any other man ever received the gospel. And it's especially unique from how you and I receive the gospel today. Paul had a special encounter with Christ on the Damascus Road, and we'll touch on that in detail when we go through that encounter. But God's prescribed means by which sinners come to saving faith is through the preaching and receiving of the gospel of grace. We know this when Paul wrote it in Romans chapter 10. He said, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So Paul puts an end to this argument that the gospel is coming from man and the claims that he is seeking the approval of man. And then he transitions after these two verses, 11 and 12, he transitions to tackle the attack against the credibility of the gospel itself. And he does this by using his personal testimony as evidence against the gospel's truth and power. For those of you that know anything about Paul, you know that he wasn't always the New Testament writing, Christ-preaching follower of Christ that we all know and love him to be. And here in this letter, he gives us a little bit of a taste of what the first half of his life was likely like. Scholars know that he lived to be roughly around 62 years old, and he wasn't converted until around the age of 30. So those first three decades of his life, well, they weren't all sunshines and rainbows. Not only was he a religious zealot, but he was violently persecuting and attacking Christians. I mean, we see this in verse 13. You've heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. If you look back to Ephesians chapter 2, look forward to Ephesians chapter 2. I think I've got it on the screen. This is verses 1 through 3. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were like by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This is Paul's I was. It's dark. It's evil. It's full of lots of sin, and, and he's not shy about this. In fact, he'll be the first one to admit that his life before Christ was dark. But we must all at some point be humble enough to admit the same to be true of us. Romans chapter 10, Paul writes and goes on to describe in further detail just how dark this season of life is. Romans 10, 10 or Romans 3, sorry, Romans 3 verse 10. He says, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. 
All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now it's easy to read these verses paired alongside Paul's life before Christ and very easily say, yes, that was true of him, and he would admit it. My life was evil. I was, had no fear of God. But how much harder is it for us to turn that finger around and point it right back to ourselves and say, yes, that was true of me. Or maybe that is true of me now. But we all have to humble ourselves and come to this realization at some point. Romans 3 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's no exception in here. It doesn't say just Paul has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every single one of us is in this same camp or has been in this same camp at some point in our lives. And that deserves some sort of punishment. I mean, if God is a righteous judge, if he's a just judge, he can't just let sin go unpunished. Something must be done. On that just punishment for sin, so evil and so corrupt, we see in Romans 6, is death. The wages of sin is death. And this isn't just a physical death. This is a spiritual death, an eternal separation from God. This place is called hell, and this is not where you'd want to spend a Tuesday afternoon. The Bible talks about hell several times. Matthew describes it as the fiery furnace. In that place, there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Second Peter shows its utter darkness. Second Thessalonians says the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And then Revelation mentions it as a tormented day and night forever and ever. This is what we deserve as sinners, as ones who have fallen short of God's holy and righteous law. This is every single one of us, and this was Paul. But that brings us now to verse 15, where we see Paul's transformation. In Ephesians, this is the but God section of the story. This is his special encounter with the Lord. This is the moment when Saul becomes Paul, the moment when Paul, who thought one way, met the Lord and began to think a completely different way. This is the moment when Paul went from attacking Christians to being one himself. And again, it's important to note here that Paul's encounter with the Lord is unique. We shouldn't expect anyone to be on their way to Costco and be met with a blinding light and then meet Jesus and start preaching him to the world. No, this is unique. It's an experience that he has that is unlike any. And Paul shares with us several things that happen at this transformation. Verse 15. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, 
nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. What is it that Paul wants us to see about this transformation in these three short verses? Well, first, we see one thing. When he who had set me apart before I was born. We see that Paul was transformed with perfect timing. And this wasn't his timing. He had no idea this was happening. In fact, he was trying to do the exact opposite of what happened to him. Stop people from being transformed. All of this was a part of God's perfect plan And although this conversion was the last thing that Paul expected at this moment in time, it was the best thing that could ever happen to him. And this is true of everyone. That everyone who comes to this point in their life, everyone who is transformed by the gospel of grace, has been set apart before we were born. We don't know when that day is until it happens. So he is transformed with perfect timing, What else do we see? We see that he was transformed with grace. It says, But when he who had set me apart before I was born, and who called me by his grace. This wasn't anything that Paul did to earn or achieve this transformation. It was all by God's undeserved, unmerited, freely given grace. And when you pair that with the perfect timing, the fact that Paul was set apart before he was even born, it makes that grace all the sweeter. Because God knew what Paul's life would look like. He knew before Paul even began to persecute the church that he would be going around violently attacking and persecuting Christians. But yet Paul still receives this gift. How sweet is this grace? So Paul was transformed with perfect timing. He was transformed with grace. Verse 16, we see he was transformed with God's pleasure. It says, But when he set me apart before I was born, he who called me by his grace, he was pleased to reveal his son to me. It wasn't like God with a lack of patience for Paul finally said, You know what? I'm done with this. I'll finally let you in so you can stop attacking my church. It wasn't like that. With a smile on his face, with joy surrounding him, he said, Paul, you are mine. Luke 15 describes this experience in heaven. It says, There is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Every time that one person turns from their sin and trusts in the Lord, there is a celebration between God and his people. And this was no short of a celebration. Paul was transformed with perfect timing, transformed with grace, transformed with God's pleasure. And lastly, we'll see in verse 16, he was transformed with a purpose. He who had set me apart, he who called me by his grace, he who was pleased to reveal his son to me, why? Verse 16, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. Notice that Paul doesn't focus on the personal benefit that he got from becoming a son of God. Instead, he is laser focused on the work that he was called to do for God's kingdom. Our, Our churches today and 
especially in our culture, tend to miss this point. I like to always help people understand. You can usually get a gauge for how healthy a church is when you listen to the first few songs in their worship set. Ask how many songs are about you and how many songs are about God. That'll usually give you a gauge on how healthy a church is. The churches who are focused on you and how much you've gained, how awesome you are, are completely missing the point. Paul got it. The moment he was transformed, he didn't say, oh, look how great my life is now. Though that's true, he wasn't focused on that. He didn't care how much he would gain from this. He was focused on how great God was. Later on, Paul would go on to describe himself as the chief of sinners. He thought so low of himself and how so high of God that anyone who came into contact with him could not possibly attribute any change or any glory or any greatness to Paul himself but rather they would ascribe that completely to God. And the distinctive feature of Paul's ministry is found here. You see that he had the unique responsibility of proclaiming Christ to the Gentiles, and he knew that from the very beginning. He said, in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, and Paul's ministry to the Gentiles is incredible. You just see it throughout the New Testament. All the letters he wrote to the churches he planted all the ministry he did to them. Paul knew his purpose, he knew his mission, and he wasn't distracted. He went straight for the prize. If you're tracking with the passage in Ephesians, you can flip back there if you want. Ephesians chapter 2. This is verses 4 through 6. This experience, this transformation, is the but God. So Ephesians 2, 4, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is that moment for Paul. And for many of us, we know this moment to be so sweet. We might not have been on our way to persecute Christians like Paul was, but we certainly were living a life without Christ. And while we were still doing that, God saves us. Romans 6.23, we talked about that earlier, that the wages of sin is death. That due penalty that we deserve, that punishment that we deserve is death, it's hell. That verse doesn't end there. It goes on and says, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul was transformed with perfect timing. He was transformed with grace. He was transformed with God's pleasure. And he was transformed with a purpose. And this is true of everyone who is transformed, including you and me. And a lot of times when people consider this passage, especially those who are raised in a Christian home, they start to ask a lot of questions. They wonder, well, My life isn't as crazy as Paul's. My transformation wasn't instantaneous in a moment like that. There wasn't this huge contrast. I wasn't some wild, God-hating kid. And then one day out of nowhere, I became a Christian. Well, for many of us, it was through years and years of faithful parents teaching us the gospel, teaching us about the Lord, training us and discipling us. And your testimony is a testimony of God's grace 
no matter how contrasting your life might seem. Just because your testimony isn't as wild as Paul's, it doesn't make it any less an incredible testimony of God's grace. And I love the way that Joe Radicevich says it in his quote. He says, We should wonder together both at how God saved the Apostle Paul, an accessory to murder and an enemy of Christians, and at how God used Timothy's faithful mother and grandmother to lead him to faith. Both are stories of grace. One grace overwhelms, the other woos. After all, it's by grace that both men entered and served in God's kingdom. So it is with all of us. So whether you are a contrasting testimony like Paul, or whether you've been raised and trained by your family like Timothy, both stories are stories of grace. So this is Paul's but God moment. We get now to verse 18 and we see the now I am, Paul's new life in Christ. This is, as 2 Corinthians would say, therefore if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. This is the new Paul. Look at verse 18. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw no one, none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. And what I'm writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They were only hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. Verse 24, and they glorified God because of me. Verses 18 through 22, so the first four verses in this little section here, they kind of serve to help Paul continue to prove that the gospel he received didn't come from any of the other apostles, it wasn't distorted by any man, but that it came from God himself. In the context of most of Paul's arguments in this section are highlighting that fact, the fact that Paul's gospel is from Christ himself and that the gospel is untarnished by any man. I mean, he didn't even see any other apostles until three years after his conversion. And that three years after his conversion, he was proclaiming the gospel. So it's not even possible that they could have skewed his message or distorted it in any way. Paul had his but God moment and immediately went to work preaching the good news that he received. He went to Arabia, he went to Damascus. After three years, he went to Jerusalem. I mean, you look at this section of the letter and you see after that transformation that nothing else describes Paul's life but on mission. Those three years after he was converted, he went to Jerusalem and he visited Cephas, who's also known as Peter, the Apostle Peter. And he sees James during this time as well. He's only there for 15 days, he tells us here. And when I was reading this, I was just trying to wonder what awesome conversations they had in those 15 days. I mean, you know that Cephas or Peter and James were aware of who Paul was, Saul of Tarsus, the one who was persecuting the churches that they were planting. And then they see him come strolling into town. I can only imagine those conversations. 
After this visit to Jerusalem, though, Paul didn't waste any time. He continued his work for the gospel. Verse 21, then he went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia. For those of you that don't know, this is his hometown. He went back to where he was raised, where he was so proud about his father's traditions. He was a Jew of Jews, zealot against the Christians, persecuting them violently. And this is who he was known to be. We don't have a whole lot of information on the time in this region, but I don't doubt that this time of ministry was full of difficult conversations, incredible testimonies of God's grace. I mean, just think about it. The last time Paul was there, he was leading the charge against Christians. And he gets back to all his childhood friends, his family members, and says, wait, guys, wait, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess that this was a little bit different than someone from Indianapolis moving to Tennessee for a few years and then coming back a Titans fan. I imagine the difference is a little bit more drastic than that. But we see in verse 22, he continues to hammer the point that this gospel message couldn't be distorted by the churches in Judea because they weren't even acquainted with him. But what's fascinating here is not that they didn't know him, But it's that Paul's testimony had already begun to spread, and these churches had heard about the guy who was persecuting them. Not only did he stop persecuting, but he's now preaching the very message that he was persecuting them for. 23 says, They only were hearing it said, He who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. And what happened as a result of this? Verse 24, they glorified God because of me. This is the testimony of a truly transformed man. And I love the charge that we get in Matthew chapter 5 from Jesus himself. He says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And Paul's testimony, Paul's example of that here in this text is a beautiful example of what Jesus said is true. That when we, as ones who were in darkness, let our light shine before the world, others will look at us. They will ask questions. They will see God working in our lives, and as a result, they will give glory to to God. This is a beautiful picture of God's redeeming work on sinners. I want to uh, spend some time this morning. I want us all to flip over to the book of Acts. We'll go to Acts chapter 9 this morning. I want to spend some time reading Paul's own account of his transformation. In Acts chapter 9, he gives a a bit of an expanded account of his transformation on the Damascus Road. He does it a few other times in Scripture, but this one gives us a lot of detail. And while we're reading this, this chapter, I want us to do two things. One, I want you to try, and as we're reading through this testimony, I want you to try and see that framework throughout. The I was, the but God, and the I am. 
So as we're reading this testimony, try and see if you can see those moments in the story. And then secondly, as we're hearing this read and reading it along together, I want us just to soak in how incredible our Lord is and how amazing of a gift we have in the gospel. So Acts chapter 9, we'll start in verse 1, and we'll just read together. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus, and for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much we mu- he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days he was with the disciples at Damascus, and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is, this not, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him. But his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket. And when he had come to Jerusalem, he attempted to join the disciples, and they were all afraid of him, for they did not believe that he was a disciple. But Barnabas took him 
brought him to the apostles and declared to them how on the road he had seen the Lord, who spoke to him and how at Damascus he had preached boldly in the name of Jesus. So he went in and out among them at Jerusalem, preaching boldly in the name of the Lord. And he spoke and disputed against the Hellenists, but they were seeking to kill him. And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is a beautiful, beautiful story of God's redeeming grace on Paul, but just a testimony and an encouragement to us who, like Paul, are sinners in need of this grace. I think the most notable takeaway from Paul's testimony, and one that many use to preach the gospel to dark people, is that if Paul can save, or if God can save Paul, then God can save you. And this is so true. I don't care how broken you are, how far gone you think you might be, how bad things, how how many bad things you might have done. You need to hear this. You are not so lost that the creator of this universe cannot find you and rescue you from your darkness. If you don't have an I was, but God, I am story, if you can't look back at your life and see these three frameworks, let today be that but God day. Let today be the day that you listen to the call of God on your life, that you turn from your sin, that you trust in the Lord, that you cry out to Him for forgiveness, knowing that you have been forgiven because anything you have done or will do has already been forgiven. That nothing you do is going to earn your favor with God. That your life, you shouldn't try to live your life to where the good outweighs the bad. You shouldn't try and do all of these traditions to try and make God give you peace or give you favor or allow you into his kingdom because you've obeyed all his laws. No, you turn from trying to do that work yourself and you trust completely on the finished work of Christ. Christ died on the cross for our sins. Not just Paul's sins, our sins. I love the way that the the hymn says, Ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. We need to realize that we, if we were there at Jesus' side on his crucifixion, we would be the ones mocking him. He died what we deserve. He rose from the dead and he proved, though, that sin and death have been defeated. And he says that he is faithful and just to forgive all who call upon his name, even Paul, even you, even me. If you do not have a but God day, make today your but God day and look forward to the wonderful future of the now I am. And for those of you who may have been walking with the Lord for some time now, some of you might be ashamed of how not exciting your testimony might be. 
just be reminded and encouraged that your testimony is a beautiful picture of the grace we have through Christ. And it is meant to be shared with everyone around you. If you were raised in a Christian home and came to faith at a young age and you have kids now, do the same for your kids. Your testimony, no matter how boring it may seem, is nonetheless a testimony of grace. It is equally as powerful, as valid, and exciting as the testimonies of Saul and the like. Because when the gospel of grace comes into contact with sinners, something extraordinary happens. And even more than that, when sinners who have been transformed by this gospel of grace go out into the world with that good news, something extraordinary happens. I'll close with this quote from Paul David Tripp. It's a book that he has called Instruments in the Hands of the, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. I pieced together several sections. That's why you'll see all the little dots. He says this, God never intended us to simply be the objects of his love. We are also called to be instruments of that love in the lives of others. God transforms people's lives as people bring his word to others. The paradigm is simple. When God calls you to himself, he also calls you to be a servant, an instrument in his redeeming hands. All of his children are called into ministry. God's kingdom work involves every member of the body of Christ. Whether you are a child, a spouse, a neighbor, a relative, a pastor, an employer or employee, a teacher, a student, or a friend, all of your relationships must reflect your ambassadorial calling. You must always seek to faithfully represent his message, methods, and character. God sends unfinished people to unfinished people with the message of his grace so that he can reclaim every heart for his glory. And that's what we see with Paul in this beautiful story. He sent an unfinished person to unfinished people with his message of God's grace all for his glory. And verse 24 in Galatians chapter 1 says, they glorified God because of it. So let's pray this morning and be reminded of this beautiful gift we have.